0: Thank you for that lovely introduction, and um, thank you all for joining um, this afternoon. I know it's afternoon in the UK, morning here in the US. Um, The title of my talk, Monuments and Replica, is uh, me trying to figure out a piece of this larger project. So I'll start by making a few confessions, Um, but before I do that, I do want to acknowledge that I'm speaking from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Um, Our Board of Trustees has recently adopted a land acknowledgement, and um, after many, many years, we are all opening our talks and our public presentations with this acknowledgement. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Guyagono, the Cayuga Nation. The Guyagono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, uh, and the Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. I'm very pleased to be able to include this land acknowledgement. I'm also very uh, pleased to say that um, folks in, in the history department, of which I'm a member, uh, have been doing some fantastic work thinking about uh, land-grant institutions and the dispossession of Indigenous populations. So let me start um, on the talk and make some confessions. Um, I'm not an intellectual historian by training, but I read intellectual his- to histories with some excitement. I'm very much a historian of gender and I'm very deeply engaged with feminist theory. I'm also um, trained, trained is an odd word, but I'm a student of post-colonial theory, aware of its limits and problems, which I'm happy to talk about. I should also say that I have the enormous privilege to work at Cornell in which critical theory has animated the humanities for several generations. and. Um, Faisal Devji was a member of the School of Critical Theory a few summers ago here in Ithaca. My second confession, um, and I think it's a standard confession, which is that I had bigger ambitions for my book, Gentlemanly Terrorists, and I had planned to hold second part of the book, which was about um, following the commemorations of the radical movements that I have written about in the history of militant nationalism. I had hoped to focus on how the movement was represented in post-colonial India. And then for a variety of reasons, um, the book got too big. And and so the book that you uh, have seen maybe is only half the book I had intended to write. I know that the questions of historical heritage and preservation are ablaze in the UK newspaper. So I'm giving this talk with some trepidation. I'm sure you all have statue fatigue as I do. Um, So when I give this paper in part, I've read some of that work, but I really look forward to your conversations. Finally, the third uh, confession, and that is that the paper, not surprisingly, is a part of a new project that brings me to materials that I haven't worked with before. I'm trying out a number of ideas and I'm thinking through um, in particular scholarship in the history of art, in the history of archeology, span which all has brought me closer to the history of things. Um, These are all fields in which I wasn't trained. I've been involved in this radical collaborations initiative. And in, in some sense over the two years that the group has been together, Uh, One of the things that I'll say is that we've done a lot of talking about how the ideas uh, float around. I'm not sure that they've come together in an argument. So I'm trying to identify some of the tensions in how we think of monuments. I'll start um, with the slide. Uh, That's the cover image of gentlemanly terrorists. And it's a lithograph that was printed very widely in the 1940s. Hundreds of these images were printed during the Quit India movement over a generation after Kudhirambos's death. They publicized Bengal's revolutionary pasts at a time when the future was an open question. Um, During Quit India, as we all know, the Communist Party of India did not quit India, but it planned for a revolutionary future and it sought recruits through the circulation of images like this. Um, There are many such printed images and I'll share a few of them. They appear in uh, Chris Pinney's book, Photos of the Gods. Uh, You can see here in all of these images, Kudiram preparing for his execution for the attempted assassination of a district magistrate. Uh, There's some images that um, nearly all of them have this kind of shared theme. They're all on a scaffolding or on a pedestal. The one on the right shows him in a courthouse The presence of police and judicial authorities are replicated in the various versions of these these images. And in all of them, one of the things I'll just point out is he's shown in shorts and a shirt to show how young he is. The mass replication of printed material is of course a hallmark of modernity. One in which the ability to print many copies and circulate them generated new forms of belonging and affect. Walter Benjamin's important essay from 1935, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction is a starting point for me. I've returned to it, I think as many of us do, to elaborate on features of the argument that I hadn't noticed before. Benjamin's essay draws from an essay by Alois Regal called The Modern Cult of Monuments in which Regal defined artistic and historic value. Written in 1905, Regal considered the emergence of heritage preservation as it aligned with a rage for installing monuments. I want to share with you these two images Um, and in some ways I'll start by saying I was curious about how the image on the left uh, transformed into the statue of Kudiram that is on the right Uh, and in particular I was intrigued by how the man um, or the young man uh, who is standing on scaffolding is transformed into this man on the right um, on a pedestal. I was Curious in particular about the choices that the sculptor made in sculpting the bronze statue on the right. You can also see that there's a difference in the clothing, a shift from the young man wearing shorts to the young man wearing a kurta One of the things I'll tell you is that I don't know the answer to this. I started to find this out when I was in last in India in 2018. Um, I obviously hope to go back and find out more. So along the process of doing this research, um, I've, I've kind of come upon three surprises and I'll tell you what they are. Um, I've made three confessions, I'll tell you the three surprises. Among them, the first is the prevalence of the replica in public sculptures, which I'll get to in the second half of the talk today. Another surprise is that monuments, even as they're intended to showcase stability, authority and permanence are moved and the final surprise, uh, which is the least developed part of the talk today, but I'm happy to, to kind of riff on it um, in the Q&A, but I'll mark it so you know where I'm heading um, is the temporal alignment between modern and colonial and postmodern with post-colonial. And in particular, I'm thinking uh, about Hannah Feldman's brilliant work from The Nation Torn and her account of the emergence of postmodern and contemporary art in France, she notes, that the emergence of postmodern and contemporary art in France is almost entirely disengaged from decolonization. I won't do justice to her work today, but I want to mark it as an important formation. The book project begins by marking the chronological alignments between the history of Britain and the history of the British Empire. The establishment of the Royal Academy in Britain coincided and gave rise to what many have called statue mania. The period between the Napoleonic Wars and the start of the First World War is a moment when hundreds of statues of Imperial military monarchical figures are installed in Britain and across the empire. Most, if not all of the statues that one might see in central London or central Calcutta were commissions. They're paid for by public subscriptions as a way to show the loyalty of the donors and the support for the empire. And nearly all of the artists were members of the Royal Academy. The statues were installed in colonized India's examples of public art that's authentically British, possessing the type of aura Benjamin and others defined as important features of how art is displayed in modern life. In the case of the monuments installed on the Indian subcontinent during the centuries of British occupation, installing monuments became a way of permanently marking British territory. There's a number of books that have addressed this and I've just put up some covers to kind of talk through them um, not with any deep engagement but with some reference points. The dramatic increase in mutiny monuments as Meena Raj Gopalan and Zahid have shown materialized the trauma suffered by British colonizers. Mutiny commemorations brought British tourists to India so they, they could experience the trauma of 1857. And of course this served as an alibi for the expansion of empire. As Roger Gopalin writes in A Challenge to Walter Benjamin, she writes, quote, indeed it was the technology of reproduction that converted mutiny sites from objects with mere use value to monuments of historic value. And here she's talking about the ways that mutiny monuments are endlessly photographed, filmed and shown to audiences across the empire. Thinking through the scholarship on colonial India, we know that the growth of photography and the mass reproduction of lithographs generated forms of popular cultural that were able to bypass colonial censors and restrictions. And of course, Goddess and the Nation is emblematic of that as is the work of Kadri Jain and Chris Penny. Um, I would also refer you to the digital collections of the Tasvirkar website. The statue, however, because of its monumental size is presumed the opposite of the lithograph. It's not mass-produced, and the materials that are often used, marble or bronze, are meant to be durable and long-lasting. We can agree that the empire was built by a paper reality. It was also built in bronze and marble. I'll be talking today about the statues that are called quote-unquote life-sized. They're actually larger than life, often 8 to 10 feet tall, taller than the ordinary human. Their size projects a territorial occupation, one that presents the empire as immovable. The scale of what art historians have called portrait statues differs from busts, of which there are many. As Benjamin noted in the essay that he wrote The Mechanical Art of Reproduction, quote, he writes, it's easier to exhibit a portrait bust that can be sent here or there than to exhibit the statue of a divinity that has a fixed place in the interior of a temple. You may recall that Benjamin's essay marks a shift from the religious to the secular, a change from the idea of sculpture or painting as one central to religious ritual, but in the modern era, seen as an aesthetic object that is stripped of religious purpose. His anxiety about replication is directed to photography and film, which he fears amplifies this secular project in a fascist way, and we can talk more about that. Even as he notes that some form of replication has always existed in art, we might note that the replica exists as a form of education—replicas of the body in anatomy classes, or features in architecture and archaeology classes. If you work in the British Library, um, and I hope many of you know what I'm talking about, you may recognize this bust. Um, it is a very prominent feature of the way that the East India Company used art to publicize what it was doing in South Asia. This is Henry Colebrook, you can look him up. It's a replica of the bust sculpted by Francis Chantry. This bust is located by the toilets that are outside the Asia Pacific and Africa collections and has several examples, including one in the Royal Asiatic Society. In colonial India, these statues were often placed on pedestals more than human height, so that passers were awed by the sight of bronze statues. The placement of these statues is coupled with the building of colonial cities. As Sunil Kalani has noted, the installation of statues and monuments to empire marked the ways in which the city became the space of expansion. And I'll just show you the statue of Edward VII, um, which is sculpted by Thomas Brock. Here in this image, it's being unveiled um, and you can see the veil on the right. I'll say a little bit more about that. This comes from the photograph album of the Prince of Wales in the Royal Tour of India uh, in 1921-22. Moving a seemingly immovable object from London to Calcutta showed how colonial resources, shipping and transport, as well as the cost of commissioning an artist with payment of the requisite materials were used to establish political authority more than a flag and less than a building, the statue of the worthy became a staple of what Regal argued was a shift in how we thought of monuments at the turn of the 20th century. Rather than preserving the old, we were now marking history by putting up new monuments. You won't be surprised to hear that there's a surge of monuments not just after 1857, but another after Queen Victoria dies in 1901, and then again in the 19 teens. When I did research in India, um, and I've done research in Calcutta on and off for many years, um, people told me that I should keep an eye out for the Kudiram statue. And uh, it took me a long time to find it, but here is the statue. It's mounted on a tall plinth about 10 feet high. It's located in a roundabout and it's actually quite difficult to find. What I learned is that the statue was installed in 1972 and it marked the 25th anniversary of Indian independence, which occurred shortly after the war, the end of the war with Pakistan. The statue itself was commissioned in 1969, um, but when the statue is unveiled, it commemorated uh India's alliance and solidarity with Bangladesh. Kudiram himself is born in Bangladesh and one of the things that's quite interesting about the statue um, is that when it's commissioned it has a purpose which is the anniversary by the time it's unveiled it has a different meaning. What I learned as I researched this statue was that it had replaced another statue and that statue is this statue of Lord Auckland, governor general of India from 1836 to 1842. Sculpted by Henry Weeks, professor of sculpture at the Royal Academy. The statue was installed in 1848, shortly after Eden left India to return to England. Some of you will recall that Eden had managed a disastrous intervention in Afghanistan during his term. He's commemorated for his service in India nonetheless. By the time, by now, for some of you, Henry Weeks, or the name of Henry Weeks should ring a bell, he's also the sculptor who made the statues at the Oxford Martyrs Memorial that was designed by George Gilbert Scott. Lord Auckland here on the right had never been to New Zealand in his lifetime, even though the capital city was named after him. You see him donning scholars robe in the city center, modestly at street level without a pedestal. In this slide, maybe I could see, show you the next slide and let me just see if I have it. In this next slide, you can see where um, the statue was originally mounted. Uh, this is an image, uh, a pan-colored photograph from 1851 that showed its placement outside Eden Gardens. The two statues share very little, except that they're both in bronze. Maybe I'll bring you back to that. One of the things that's interesting is the robing, and that gets us back to the dhoti. I wanna get away from the idea that the Kudiram statue replicated Auckland, but rather I wanna suggest that Auckland was a replication of the ancient statues that preceded him. The idea that Indian rulers were keen to replace statues of colonial rulers seems to have been a consistent fear in the 1950s and 1960s. Some figures actively promoted, not the figures themselves, but their followers, promoted the installation of statues to replace those who had existed before. And I'll, I gave you a glimpse of this statue, but I'll share it with you now. Um, this is a statue of Shubha Bos on the left and James Utram on the right. You can see it's a replica of the same statue. Utram was at the Shambazar crossing um, before this was installed in 1969 on the left. If you don't remember who James Utram is, you know that there are lots of city streets named after him. He was resident in Lucknow in 1854, actively uh, involved in the annex- annexation of Awadh and then suppressing the 1857 mutiny. Although we're reading a great deal about iconoclasm against colonial statues, relatively few statues were destroyed when the British left India. Most were moved to another location or gathered in museums. When the Calcutta Municipal Corporation invited the city of Auckland to cart the statue away, a corporate donation from the New Zealand Insurance Company made the reinstallment possible in 1969. So, one of the things I'm really interested in is these post colonial moving of statues across continents. And nearly um, in all the cases I've found so far, what's interesting is that it involves some kind of private philanthropic donation. So, even though these are statues in the public, they're always funded by private donations. I'll just show you another statue that's moved. I showed you. Edward VII here on the left in New Delhi. In 1969, it too was moved to Toronto uh, in Queen's Park. Reflecting on the 19th century, a century in which collecting and classifying evidence of the past was widely embraced, Alois Regal defined the modern cult of monuments as a range of values attached to material objects, art value, historical value, use value, and to that he added commemorative value. Distinguishing between those who accepted the decay of old buildings against those who advocated preservation and restoration, Regal specified that a growing commitment to preservation invested many objects, even those that were dilapidated or outdated with new meanings. As the century ended, the conceit of the modern era was that all types of historical evidence, old or not, were to be maintained, restored and archived rather than lost to the past. And of course, this speaks to certain kinds of ambitions that are very much part of the 19th century universal. As Regal argues, monuments with, quote, intentional commemorative value aims to preserve a moment in the consciousness of later generations and therefore to remain alive and present in perpetuity, close quote. In the colonies, monuments were installed to mark Britain's place in India's history. They were also intended to outlast the British. As Joseph Kerner, the art historian, has written, quote, monuments are built obstinately to endure. And I'll just reflect on this um, statue of Edward VII, which I've written a little bit about. It's actually installed at the height of non-cooperation. The urge to preserve depends on the idea that these monuments were unique and singular, to topple a statue or behead a statue is to kill the king. More important, it depends on a logic central to Benjamin's logic that reproduction is some kind of loss to authenticity. So in the next part of the talk, I wanna turn to the use of the replica and colonial statues. And and before I do that, I wanna share in quick succession a few examples, not to overwhelm you with evidence, but to guide you to the next phase of the talk, which is about the replica. And in particular, I wanna focus on the generative nature of the replica and what replicas can do. So let me show you this statue, which if any of you spend time in London, you may recognize this is John Lawrence, also formerly a viceroy of India. This statue on Waterloo Place looks like the original. Um, It in fact is a replica that was made after the family of John Lawrence complained about the original. The sculptor uh, Joseph Bohm made a new one from the cast with a different inscription. And the old one was sent to Lahore where Lawrence really made his mark. Um, And of course, some of you know, he was chief commissioner of the Punjab. So this is uh, an image of the original statue Uh, It was originally placed in Waterloo Place, moved to Lahore, and now actually it's been moved to Ireland in 1957. The next statue I'll share with you, and you can tell I have a lot to say about statues. So there's this little um, sculpture on the bottom, the ball. So ask me about the monument, that monument, if you want to know more. But the statue, I just want to, the replica here I want to address is um, the statue that's been relatively uh, controversial in recent months. Um, Lord Clive here on the left in front of Whitehall, on the right in uh, Victoria Memorial. Um, These statues are put up in 1912 by Lord Curzon after Curzon resigned his position as Viceroy of India. In spite of some significant opposition, Curzon raised the funds to commission a statue of Clive by John Tweed. Although the installation was, was installed, the Clive statue was nonetheless installed outside the foreign office in 1916. It shows Clive dressed in military clothing, but I'll just focus your um, attention to the pedestal where there are bas reliefs on each side showing three historical scenes from Clive's career in India. The victory at uh, Arcot in 1751, victory at Plassey in, also in 1751, and the accession to the Wani. You'll notice um, on the right-hand side that such a pedestal does not exist. Um, It was shipped to Calcutta where it was installed in the Victoria Memorial in the 1920s, 150 years after Clive's term in India had ended. There are not the history lessons on the pedestal. On the right, it is a replica made in marble. I should also say that Jennifer Howe, the art historian is gonna give a talk about this in a few weeks time, which I recommend. One of the things that's interesting about this replica, of course, is that people in Britain needed a history lesson. People in India might not wanna be reminded of that history lesson. So I'm gonna take a breath and pause, and I'm gonna turn to the next um, section of the talk and start by saying, this is the part I really don't know anything about, but I've become completely invested in contemporary art. Um, and because we've all been away from our libraries and archives, um, I've taken this pause to kind of more fully engage in the ways that contemporary art is talking back to empire. It's a circuitous route, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna walk you through it anyway. So in June, 2017, uh, I went to the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis with a group of old friends from graduate school. We had gathered there for a long weekend um, at the end of of an academic semester. We arrived too late to get into the Walker Art Center, but the sun was setting that evening. We entered the sculpture garden, which is outside. In Minneapolis, the sculpture garden is a way in which the arts have been supported as being democratic and for the people. This democratic purpose is served in many ways in the sculpture garden. There's no entry fee. There's no curated uh, path through the space. And there's also um, what I would say art uh, from a range of sculptures. As we headed toward the sculpture of the bright red cherry on a teaspoon, this is one of the original pieces of art uh, in the sculpture garden. I did a double take at the sculpture that is placed further along and you can see it in the distance um, here. It was an enormous blue rooster looking regal in size and color as it looked over the sculpture garden. I had an intense moment of deja vu. I knew I had seen the sculpture before, but I had never been in Minneapolis. Later, I recall that I had seen the big blue rooster in Trafalgar Square one summer when I was doing research at the British Library. The sculpture had been mounted on the fourth plant at Trafalgar Square, where it was displayed from July, 2013 to February, 2015. At first, I thought it was very strange that a statue of a blue rooster was moved from London to Minneapolis, from the heart of empire to the heart of the American Midwest. Then I learned that this was a case of two statues, and the statue, which is called Hahn in German, slash Cock, which is its translation in English, had been originally designed for the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. And for those of you who don't know, the fourth plan hosts a rotating series of art installations that are specifically commissioned for that space. The version that was in Minneapolis was a replica, hence the two dates, 2013 and 2017. My book's argument, um, and I'm imagining this as an epilogue or a final chapter, is heading toward making a case for contemporary art as an important form of public criticism. And the, Artist that I'm really most engaged with is Kara Walker and her commission in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern a few years ago. Today I'll focus on Katharina Frisch in part because her work allows me to elaborate how her aesthetic and artistic choices critique the concept of the public statue and the idea of the replica. The blue statue when it was originally shown in London was unveiled and unveiled here is an important idea by the mayor of London who was then Boris Johnson. The idea of unveiling which is so central to feminist and post-colonial thinking is an important form of ritual when it comes to public statues. I won't have, I think I don't have time um, to share with you uh, this statue, but you should watch um, Boris Johnson unveiling the statue. Um, He makes various kinds of comments uh, about the use of the word cock, which you can watch, and I'll I'll put it in the chat when I I finish. Over the last two decades, the space of the fourth plinth has become a space for contemporary commissions that are overseen by the mayor of London's fourth plinth commissioning group. The group aims to consider how to remake this, this space known as the heart of empire with a rotating series of public sculptures. It has an imagination of a more inclusive and multicultural public in mind. And one of the interesting things about Katharina Frisch is of course, she is both German and also an avowed feminist. She has been described as a sculptor of the female gaze. And she commented that her design was intended to be humorous. She intended for this to be a double entendre and a counter monument that drew attention to the masculine and martial forms of the other statues in the square. The Guardian's review ran under the charge headline, Big Blue Cock Erected on the Fourth Plinth. Uh, It noted the sculpture was gleefully feminist, poking fun at the statues of men, Nelson, George IV, and the generals, Havelock and Napier. From Trafalgar Square, the 14 foot tall monument was moved to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC in July, 2016, where it is now permanently situated. What's most important is the sculpture stands on the ground so that an observer can stand feet to feet with it. The proximity allows the viewer to see the detail on the rooster's features, which are carefully crafted from fiberglass to replicate the figures on the real, the the features of a real rooster. In these two installations, the experience of seeing the sculpture is transformed. Maybe I'll see if I, oh, geez, I can't, I realize. But there was a reason that I was going to um, show you this clip. Let me show you what it looks like in Trafalgar Square.
1: I just had an emergency briefing from the brilliant artist, Katerina, about her interpretation of this fantastic work that we're about to unveil. And she said it was all a, uh, a woman's or oh, famous. Like the Australians, in French, but also, of course, the cultural and the artistic capital of the world. And I think it's a testament to our sense of freedom, the liberty that we have here in London, uh, that this beautiful, beautiful sculpture, which I am shortly about if you ask, to ask for the unveiled. This beautiful, beautiful sculpture. If you were to Google it in a few years' time, you will probably not be able to find it because that uh, search engine would collapse on the list of the Prime Minister uh, quite properly, by the way. But in the, meantime, in the meantime, feast your eyes, feast your eyes on this beautiful new fourth-link sculpture. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is: the big blue. So I don't know how many of you were able to hear Boris Johnson's words, but um,
0: in the unveiling he said, uh, if you were to Google it in a few years, it would crash the search engine and the prime minister might in a few years ban it, which I think is uh, interesting. In these two installations between Trafalgar Square and um, the statue, the sculpture here in in Washington, DC, the experience of seeing or experiencing the sculpture has been utterly transformed merely by the fact that the one in DC does not have a pedestal. In this sense, it provokes an older set of questions about aesthetic values, about the importance of frames to paintings, columns to a building, and one might add pedestals to sculptures. When Kant posed the question of perergon, a a Greek concept, he expressed an anxiety that frames and pedestals added to the excessive ornamentation that was a hallmark of the Baroque. As the classicists Verity Platt and Michael Squire have noted, and let me just share with you some of uh, their work. As the classicists Verity Platt and Michael Squire, Squire have noted, in their engagement, in Derrida's engagement, with, come through the idea of the supplement, the pedestal is not a mere adornment, but rather the existence of a pedestal transforms the viewing experience for the person looking at a piece of art. In this reading, Platt and Squire press the idea that no art, particularly ancient and classical art, is ever finished. And here they're very, very interested in the replications of classical art through um, the two millennia of Uh, what is called Western culture. They draw from the work of contemporary artist Anthony Gormley to show how sculptures are mounted in different ways and provoke us to think about statues in a new way. Like Frisch, Anthony Gormley has been a part of the fourth plant commissions. The Blue Rooster, and I'll just go back just to show you uh, some of other uh, Frisch's sculptures. The Blue Rooster is one of Frisch's largest sculptures and demonstrates how she takes ordinary objects and plays with scale. Her other sculptures uh, of the egg, of strawberry, of a skull, the model of the Madonna, enlarge these forms so that we can see the details more closely. And on the right, you can see the seeds of the strawberry. In Benjamin's account, the replica allows us to see things that we might not have seen. In film, it's possible to slow down movement so that we can see the component parts that the human eye might not see. Quote, technical reproduction can put the copy of the original into situations which would be out of reach for the original itself. For sculptors, the model is a way to experiment with technique using a low cost material, usually plaster. Frisch uses plaster casts, a method that's long been deployed in sculpture, and increasingly she uses 3D printing to generate molds at different sizes. Her use of 3D painting means that she can scale objects to small to much larger. What she's been doing is working with these different scales as a way of thinking about how replicas at different sizes do different things. Some casts are preserved so that the bronze statue can be replicated. And I wanna end with that. So think about how these casts are being uh, made. When plaster casts are preserved, They've been used in archeological studies, both to document and to study. And I'll just show you a statue that Jennifer Trimble has identified. She works on Roman archeology. span And she notes that this statue of the large Herculaneum woman found um, in the early 1700s and 1710s, after the discovery of Pompeii, became the, classical Im- the classic image of the female form. And it became very popular in the art that followed. Many of these statues were brought back to Europe and became a part of royal collections in the 18th century. Others remained where they were. And in the 19th century, archaeologists became especially concerned that these type of artifacts remain exactly where they were. And instead, the plaster cast became the way that you could show people the statues that existed in the ancient past without actually moving the statues. As Mari Lending argues in Plaster Monuments, casts of classical forms were used to train archeologists, classicists, art historians. The copy became a low budget way to train students. And what she writes about is how most major universities have cast collections. Cornell's does, as does Oxford's. Although the collections have been destroyed in some of the major museums in which they existed, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, And the Metropolitan. This is the type of cast collection that a Royal Academy sculptor would have trained on before they cast their own sculptures. Um, And I'll just show you a cast that's in the Cornell cast collection. There's about um, 800 casts in this collection. And I would describe it as a hodgepodge in the sense that they're busts, they're life-size statues, they're also casts of architectural features. Cast collections made from ancient statues are no longer the way that sculptors learn how to sculpt. For someone like Katharina Frisch working in contemporary art, the idea of replicating or playing with the classical foundations of sculptural art has been put aside in favor of reworking models that are on everyday objects. I wanna just show you um, the third version of the rooster and it was shown last year in LA Here it's mounted on a green pedestal, it's indoors, with statues that really are of two life-size people. So these people really are between five and a half and six feet tall. Um, They're looking at their phones and they're positioned in front of the blue rooster. As she noted in an essay, roosters often make a lot of noise, but the chickens rarely notice. In her elaboration, she critiques her own statues as barely drawing any attention. Her vision is reminiscent of Robert Musil's famous incantation about statues, quote, there's nothing in the world as invisible as monuments, close quote. In Musil's formulation, which was written around the same time as Benjamin's essay, Musil laments that mass media in the form of advertising has a deeper impact on our affective states than the monuments we walk by
1: every day. the site of Trafalgar Square was pure
0: genius for the fourth Plinth project, because it's often the place that those who want to establish, uh, install celebratory statues want to place their heroic figures. Gary Young, for those of you who know him, who who chaired the fourth Plinth commission wrote a very good essay in The Guardian recently, um, which I'll share in the chat later. Um, As I conclude, I want to end not with a set of conclusions, but rather with an example about how the public debate about statues has focused on preservation on the grounds that these are somehow original works of art that cannot be moved. As we know, monuments are always being moved. That's how they got to the colonies in the first place. Another argument for for preservation has been about the originality of the statues. And what I wanna end with here is that few statues were original or all
1: that authentic. So I focused on um,
0: Frisch in part because I really wanted to bring you Trafalgar Square. Um, And the part that I wanna talk about in closing has a longer version of an essay that I've written for the Royal Historical Institute blog that'll go live next week. The essay focuses on an effort that followers of Cecil Rhodes made in the 1930s to have a statue of Rhodes installed in Trafalgar Square. It's the same group of followers that proposed the installation of Rhodes at Oriel College in Oxford. It occurred a generation after Rhodes died, and the argument at that point was that Rhodes' legacy was being forgotten. For reasons that are unclear from the records, the Public Works Department resisted having a statue of Rhodes placed in Trafalgar Square, and instead they suggested that the the people who wanted to donate the funds for it look elsewhere. I wanna start here with the original statue and original in quotes to commemorate Cecil Rhodes. It's on Table Mountain in Cape Town, South Africa. And it is described as Cecil Rhodes on a horse. The statue was shown at the Royal Academy in 1904 before it was sent to Cape Town where it was installed in a park and memorial designed by Herbert Baker who is the same Herbert Baker who designed the central buildings in New Delhi. The Cape Town installation is flanked by lions. You can see them here on the left. The lions are deliberately replicas of those that are at Trafalgar Square. On the right is a display from November, 2017. This version is the fourth version of this statue and will be placed at the George Watts Gallery south of London. So I read these documents a few years ago thinking that there was no statue of Rhodes to London, which is something um, that his followers proposed several times from the 1930s into the 1970s. But it turns out there is a replica of the monument to Rhodes. It depends on how you would define replica. So here is physical energy in Kensington Gardens. And rather than being an homage to Rhodes, it's an homage to the artist, George Frederick Watts, who used to live a short walk away from Kensington Gardens. Because it's not marked as an homage to Rhodes, it evades the problem that a Rhodes statue represents in London, and it allows the public to appreciate the art of the Royal Academy sculptor. So in closing, I wanna return to the idea of the replica. In post-colonial studies, drawing from the work of Homi Baba and partially Partha Chatterjee, we've become accustomed to thinking of mimicry as a derivative form of expression. Judith Butler, writing in the same moment as Baba, of course, challenged the idea of derivation. And she instead argued that copies or forms are remaking, challenging, stretching, and expanding. In the study of what we used to call drag queens, Butler allowed us to imagine the language of transgender studies and non-binary life. So in the larger project, I wanna think through how the replica became an important way of creating a visual unity between cities of the empire. Auckland and Calcutta, Delhi and Toronto, London and Cape Town, and of course, Calcutta in its very iterations. The replicas tied Britain's campaigns for public art and public sculpture to sites that were never public in the same way. In the colonies, the statues mark a territorial occupation that firmly established colonial sovereignty. This permanence belied the idea that Britons would ever leave. And of course, all of these statues have outlasted the British empire by over 70 years. The mounting and the pedestals are crucial. I've shown you just one example of that in the Lord Clive statues in London and in Calcutta. It's interesting that contemporary st- artists are self-consciously playing with how statues are m- mounted. It's interesting also that Antony Gormley suggested a few weeks ago that the statue of Rhodes should be turned around. As a way, as a low cost way to show that the circumstances have changed and the historical conditions under which Rhodes was installed no longer apply. Contemporary artists like Gormley Frisch and Carol Walker are actively creating these sculptural traditions. And I'll just share the statue of um, the commission that Carol Walker did. It's on the right in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern, it's now been disassembled and the the statue after that she is critiquing on the left, which is the Victoria Memorial statue done by um, Thomas Brock. In closing, I hope we can emerge from the era of statue mania to a new age of public sculpture that is truly public. I hope we can begin to imagine how feminist and decolonial works of art might challenge the legacy of public statues and colonialism In my imagination, as we travel from city to
1: city, which many of us do, I hope that we can encounter big bluebirds everywhere.